Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you, brothers and sisters, for taking the time from your busy schedules to be here today. From years of personal experience, I know the demands and pressures of attending a large university. How grateful I am that you would step away from your studies or other responsibilities to come. Let me also thank those who provided me with this opportunity to speak. My wife and I, as was said, returned from Jerusalem in mid-August after a three-year assignment at BYU's Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. We have been blessed to be in a unique university facility where we worked closely with administrators, faculty, staff, volunteers, couples, and hundreds of students in a way rarely afforded most people. Let me also thank my long life, uh, my lifelong and eternal companion for her constant support and what has been a very intense and very rewarding three years. Her sacrifices were many and her influence beyond measure. Life is often filled with surprises. While I recognize the need we all have to set goals and have lifelong plans in place, we often find ourselves taking detours. Some of these can be scenic and short-lived. Others take us down unforeseen paths. I suppose my speaking to you today is one of those shorter detours. Let me explain. After nine nonstop semesters in the Holy Land, my wife and I had a plan. It was time to come home. When we did, we would return to Utah, where I would do my best to avoid going to my office on campus for a few months. After three years of being away, I imagined an avalanche of mail sitting on my desk. My plan was to spend time with family, find a home, buy a car or two—we sold our home and cars before leaving for Jerusalem—and arrange for a trip to Florida to visit Magnolia, our nine-month-old granddaughter that I have not yet met. It was a good plan. Our first week back could not have gone better. We retired to my in-laws' cabin for some welcomed family time. They loaned us a car so we could get around, and our oldest daughter and her husband graciously took us into their home. Life was good. Then it happened. Two weeks after being back, I received an unexpected invitation to speak at this devotional, clearly a deviation from the plan. A few ripples on the calm waters of life in between finding cars we have a home, we closed on it Friday, and spending time with family, I have quietly been slipping into my office on campus to prepare for this wonderful opportunity. I moved the piles of mail off to one side of my office, where much of it still awaits my attention. Since no topic was assigned, I presume that with the invitation coming so close on the heels of our return home, that I should say something about Jerusalem. My first exposure to Jerusalem was in 1984, long before most of you were born. 
Sister Whitchurch and I had spent our summers saving enough money so that we could participate on a three-week Lands of the Scriptures workshop offered through LDS seminaries and institutes. Our travels took us to Italy, Egypt, and many places throughout the Holy Land. From the minute the plane touched down on the tarmac at the International Airport near Tel Aviv, I felt like I had come home to see a long-lost family member, like my granddaughter, one whom I have never met. The emotions were intense and unanticipated. I somehow felt connected to a land I had only imagined in my mind, the home of my biblical ancestors and the land where our Savior was born, lived, died, and was resurrected. I am not the first to have such an experience. Many people who travel to the Holy Land express similar feelings. Elder Orson Hyde, for example, he arrived in Jerusalem on Thursday, October 21, 1841. He said, As I gazed upon it and its environs, the mountains and hills by which it is surrounded, and considered that this is the stage upon which so many scenes of wonders have been acted, where prophets were stoned and the Savior of sinners slain, a storm of commingled emotions suddenly arose in my breast, the force of which was only spent in a profuse shower of tears. In 1873, Elder Lorenzo Snow, his sister Eliza R. Snow, President George A. Smith of the First Presidency, and a few others traveled to the Holy Land. Elder Snow described his experience this way, One hour's ride from our lunching place will bring us to Jerusalem. We move on at length, ascend an eminence, and gaze on the holy city Jerusalem. Away to the right is Mount Zion, the city of David, and off to the left, that lofty eminence with an aspect so barren is the Mount of Olives, once the favorite resort of our Savior and the spot last pressed by His sacred feet before He ascended into the presence of His Father. These interesting historic scenes with all their sacred associations inspire reflections, impressive and solemn. Yes, there is Jerusalem, where Jesus lived and taught and was crucified, where He cried, it is finished, and bowed his head and died." Time and time again I see those who come to the Holy Land, regardless of religious background, do the same thing. They feel something they did not expect. So what is it about this part of the world that evokes such emotion in so many people? Today I would like to share a bit about the Latter-day Saint presence in the Holy Land and some unanticipated and miraculous events that have taken place there. October 24 of this month, 20 days from now, marks 175 years since Elder Orson Hyde, an apostle of the Lord, climbed to the top of the Mount of Olives to pray over that land. He traveled from Commerce, Illinois, Nauvoo, if you will, to Jerusalem, an endeavor that took him away from home and family on a journey more than 17,500 miles and lasted 33 months. October 24th of this month, again 20 days from today, marks the 37th anniversary since President Spencer W. Kimball dedicated the Orson Hyde Memorial Gardens on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. In March, March 8th, 2017, Five months from now will be the 30-year anniversary when BYU students packed up their belongings, 
from Ramat Rachel, a kibbutz not uh, too far from Jerusalem, and surprised most everyone by moving into the Jerusalem center. While an occupancy permit had been issued that allowed them to be there, portions of the building remained unfinished, giving the students an opportunity to establish residency in a building that provoked much unwanted international attention. You might guess that all of these events are intricately connected and deserve some comments. My goals are ambitious, so brevity is in order. The Church's connection with Jerusalem rightfully begins with the Prophet Joseph Smith. While we often credit Orson Hyde for the Church's involvement in the Holy Land, we should not overlook the role of the Prophet. He certainly knew the historical and prophetic significance of the Holy Land. The word Jerusalem, for example, is used over 900 times in the standard works. Add to that the many stories and future prophecies about the Holy Land, and we begin to get a sense of the significance of this geographically small corner of our Heavenly Father's vineyard. He knew well the many promises of God found in the scriptures to bring His people to the land of Jerusalem. Joseph Smith told Orson Hyde as early as 1831, right after his baptism, quote, You will go to Jerusalem and be a watchman unto the house of Israel, and by thy hand shall the Most High do a great work which shall prepare the way and greatly facilitate the gathering together of that people. During the 1936 dedication of the Kirtland Temple, Joseph prayed, We therefore ask thee to have mercy upon the children of Jacob that Jerusalem from this hour may begin to be redeemed, and the yoke of bondage may begin to be broken off from the house of David and the children of Judah, that they may return to the lands which thou didst give to Abraham their father. The story of Elder Hyde's journey is both remarkable and miraculous. He was born in Oxford, New Haven, Connecticut, on January 8, 1805, making him almost a year older than the Prophet Joseph Smith. When he was seven, his mother died. His father died accidentally when he was uh, 12. At 14, he moved from Connecticut to the Western Reserve near Kirtland, Ohio. On his 18th birthday, he announced his independence to his caregiver and set off on his own. His first job, he was paid $6 a month at an iron foundry. Later, he got a job clerking at the Gilbert and Whitney store in Kirtland. In 1827, at the age of 22, he was baptized into the Methodist Church. Soon afterwards, he met Sidney Rigdon, who convinced him to join a Reformed religious movement started by Thomas and Alexander Campbell. Recognizing his inadequacies and motivated by feelings that he would someday be called upon to teach his new faith, he determined to get a better education. He immersed himself in his studies, studying day and night—English, grammar, geography, arithmetic, and rhetoric. When he moved back to Kirtland after nearly a year, he had acquired the tools needed to take advantage of the local library, where he pored over history, science, and books on literature. Talk about getting an education for the right reason. In 1830, the same year the Church was organized, four Mormon missionaries stopped by the town where he was now living, some distance from Kirtland. They preached about Mormonism. Hyde writes of their visit, perceiving that they were mostly illiterate men 
and at the same time observing some examples of superior wisdom and truth in their teaching, I resolved to read the famed Golden Bible, as it was called. Accordingly, I procured the book and read a portion of it, but came to the conclusion that it was all fiction. Hyde's problem came when he found out that people he knew in the Kirtland area, including his mentor, Sidney Rigdon, were converting to Mormonism. After a careful reading of the Book of Mormon and thoughtful consideration, he was baptized by Sidney Rigdon as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As a new member, Orson wanted to know what the Lord would have him do, so he asked Joseph Smith. The revelation that followed, section 68 of the Doctrine and Covenants, stated, My servant Orson Hyde was called to his ordination to proclaim the everlasting gospel from land to land in the congregations of the wicked, in their synagogues, reasoning with and expounding all scriptures unto them. And so he did. Orson Hyde would spend a lifetime of preaching the gospel, serving one mission after another. Orson Hyde married Marina Ann Johnson the, follow, uh, Johnson. the following story is told by Orson Hyde's descendants. By the time of his wedding, Orson had saved $500, tremendous amount of money in those days. He thought that this fact was unknown. But Joseph Smith came to him and said that he was aware of the money being in Orson's possession. Orson determined that the only way Joseph could have known was through divine means. He gave the money to Joseph to aid in a Church publication. Many of you are familiar with Orson Hyde's remarkable story about his mission to Jerusalem. In early March of 1840, he was in Nauvoo, recovering from a serious ailment. He went to bed one night, but before falling to sleep, he started thinking about the field of his future labors when a vision was opened before him. For the next six hours, in his own words, he did not close his eyes as he saw, among uh, other things, the cities of London, Const Amsterdam, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. He then was commanded to go to the cities he was shown in vision. One month later, April 6, 1840, Elder Hyde spoke during general conference. He said, It had been prophesied some years ago that he had a great work to perform among the Jews and that he had recently been moved upon by the Spirit of the Lord to visit that people. I suspect that Joseph Smith nearly jumped out of his seat as he recognized the fulfillment of earlier prophecies he had given to Orson uh, were about to be fulfilled. Elder, when Elder Hyde finished speaking, Joseph Smith motioned and resolved that he should proceed on his mission. Elder John E. Page, also a member of the Twelve, then got up and spoke with much force on the subject of Elder Hyde's mission, the gathering of the Jews, and the restoration of the House of Israel. On the last day of the conference, two days later, Joseph Smith stated that since Elder Hyde had been appointed to visit the Jews, he had felt an impression that it would be well for Elder John E. Page to accompany him. Elder Hyde left Nauvoo one week later on Wednesday, October 15, 1840. He met up with Elder Page in Lima, a town about 30 miles away, and from there they began their missionary labors. They traveled together when they could, but, as circumstances dictated, they would separate with a plan to meet up in another city. An interesting story occurred in Philadelphia. While Elder Hyde was preaching at a public meeting, he mentioned that he was going on a mission to Jerusalem to dedicate the Holy Land. He also mentioned that Mormon missionaries travel without purse or scrip, 
and that he was looking for financial assistance for his mission. At the end of his sermon, a stranger gave him a purse of gold and asked one favor in return, that when he delivered his prayer in the Holy Land, he would mention the donor. Since he did not know the name of the donor, he supplicated our, uh, our Father in heaven during his dedicatory prayer in Jerusalem. He said, Do thou also look with favor upon all those through whose liberality I have been enabled to come to this land. Particularly, do thou bless the stranger in Philadelphia, whom I never saw. Actually, the man had gone home, gotten the purse of gold, and sent it back with his son to give to Joseph Smith, but who sent me gold with a request that I should pray for him in Jerusalem. The identity of the anonymous giver was not made public until 1924, during the sermon of Nephi L. Morris, a prominent member of the Church in Salt Lake City, who mentioned during his sermon this generous offering made by a stranger to Elder Orson Hyde. It so happened that John F. Beck was in the audience at the Salt Lake Tabernacle when he heard the speaker talk about the purse of gold given to Orson Hyde. A few days later, the speaker received a letter from Brother Beck, who reported that the stranger was his father, Joseph Ellison Beck. He said that all his, uh, all our family knew very well that he did that generous deed. This past summer, I was on a field trip with a group of BYU students in the old city of Jerusalem. After talking about Orson Hyde and his achievements, I asked the students if any of them happened to be a descendant of Orson Hyde. Bryson Ensign, sitting behind me, who will give the benediction today, raised his hand. I asked if he had anything he wanted to add. He said one of his favorite stories growing up about the stranger who gave Orson Hyde, Orson Hyde gold to finance his trip to Jerusalem. And so I was thrilled to tell him that my son-in-law was a direct descendant of the person who gave the gold to Orson Hyde. I took advantage of this opportunity today by asking Joseph Beck, uh, a direct descendant of Joseph Ellison Beck, the stranger who gave the gold to Orson Hyde, to offer the invocation. And I asked Bryson Ensign, a direct descendant of Orson Hyde, who received that gold, to offer our closing prayer. A reunion of sorts. I don't believe they've ever met each other. <laughs> By December of 1840, Elder Hyde was in New York waiting for Elder Page. In January, after receiving a copy of the Nauvoo newspaper, The Times and Seasons, he saw a notice written by Joseph Smith, quote, Elders Orson Hyde and Johnny Page are informed that the Lord is not well pleased with them in consequence of their delaying their mission, Elder Johnny Page in particular, and that they are requested by the presidency to hasten their journey towards their destination. Imagine being called to repent by the prophet in the local newspaper for all to see. <laughs> Talk about pressure. Worried about what to do, Elder Hyde writes to Joseph Smith and asks if he should go ahead on his own. Without waiting for an answer, he left New York on February 13, 1841, alone. As he saw in vision, Elder Hyde now traveled to London, Amsterdam, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. The hardships must have been many. In a letter to Joseph Smith, Elder Hyde eloquently expresses gratitude for Joseph's support during such difficult times. He writes, 
The friendship and goodwill which are breathed towards me through all your letters are received as the legacy which noble minds and generous hearts are ever anxious to bequeath. They soften the hard and rugged path in which heaven has directed my course. They are buoyancy in depression, joy in sorrow, and when the dark clouds of despondency are gathering thick around the mental horizon, like kind angels from the fountain of mercy, they dispel the gloom, dry the tear of sorrow, and pour humanity's healing balm into my grieved and sorrowful heart. Elder Hyde concludes this particular letter with a plea, Lord, bless my wife and children and the hand that ministers good to them. The challenges were many. He describes the trip from Smyrna, modern-day Izmir, to Beirut as near fatal as he almost starves to death. His ship was becalmed. With no wind, it took 19 days instead of the anticipated four. He ran out of food and resorted to eating snails to sustain life, of which he said, I could not get enough of them. When he finally arrived in Lebanon, he was so weak he did not have the energy to get off the ship. In a letter to Elder Parley P. Pratt, he tells of a civil war in Lebanon where 800 people had been killed. In addition, he describes a horrific state of lawlessness, murder, and theft going on about him there. Finally, he, may, he arrives in Jaffa to make the final 40-mile trek overland to Jerusalem. He writes that on October 24, 1841, as soon as the gates of the old city were opened, he crossed the brook Kidron and went upon the Mount of Olives, and there in solemn silence, with pen, ink, and paper, just as I saw in the vision, offered up the following prayer to him who lives forever and ever. Only portions of the prayer will be shared. Be pleased, O Lord, to forgive all the follies, weaknesses, vanities, and sins of thy servant, and strengthen him to resist all future temptations. Now, O Lord, thy servant has been obedient to the heavenly vision which thou gavest him in his native land, and under the shadow of thine outstretched arm he has safely arrived in this place to dedicate and consecrate this land unto thee for the gathering together of Judah's scattered remnants, according to the predictions of the holy prophets. Let that nation or that people who shall take an active part in behalf of Abraham's children and in the raising up of Jerusalem find favor in thy sight. It would be over a year before Elder Hyde would return to America after stopping in Germany to work on a publication Orson arrived in Nauvoo, middle of winter, December 7, 1842. Gone for a few months shy of three years, he finally arrived home to his wife and two daughters. What a reunion that must have been. Orson Hyde was not the only Latter-day Saint to travel to Jerusalem. Between 1873 and 1933, other presiding authorities of the Church would, would go to the Holy Land and offer up their prayers unto God. You may recognize through your studies of Church history some of the names of those who, who went. Albert Carrington, Lorenzo Snow, George A. Smith, Anthon H. W uh, Lund, Francis M. Lyman, James E. Talmadge, and John A. Witso. All of these were either members of the Twelve Apostles or of the First Presidency, and all traveled to the Holy Land to offer special prayers and blessings upon that sacred land. 
Latter-day Saints continued travel to the Middle East in the coming decades. Elder Spencer W. Kimball visited in 1960, the next April conference. His entire address was about his trip to the Holy Land. It wasn't long before the Department of Travel Study made a proposal to BYU's Board of Trustees asking them to approve a program in Jerusalem. The matter was referred to the First Presidency. President David O. McKay approved the request with a provision that the program be balanced between Arabs and Jews. That proviso continues to this day. In 1968, under the direction of Daniel H. Ludlow, Dean of Religious Education, 20 students and two faculty, Lamar Barrett and Ellis Rasmussen, inaugurated the Jerusalem Study Abroad Program. Church leaders kept coming. N. Eldon Tanner, Hugh B. Brown, Harold B. Lee, Gordon B. Hinckley, Howard W. Hunter, Neil A. Maxwell, and James E. Faust, and I'm sure I've missed many, many others. With an expanding Church presence, the mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Collick, contacted Salt Lake City to see if they were interested in developing a five-acre property on the Mount of Olives. He recommended it be named after Orson Hyde, great politician. President Spencer W. Kimball took immediate action. The needed funds were raised through donations, and the gardens were dedicated by President Kimball on October 24, 1979. Six apostles attended the dedication, along with nearly 2,000 members of the Church. With a growing BYU study abroad program, a search for property was underway. Elder Howard W. Hunter made six trips to Israel in 1979. The day before the dedication, he went to see some 26 possible land sites. From those, he selected seven or eight to show President Kimball. The eventual site of the center on Mount Scopus was not on the list. The story is told that a party of 12 people went to look at potential properties the day after the dedication. The group included Spencer W. Kimball and Eldon Tanner, their wives, uh, four members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and others. The last stop of the day was a site a bit north and east of where uh, and west of where the current Jerusalem Center building is now located. At some point, President Kimball broke off from the others and began to walk northward along the hillside, looking down towards the Kidron Valley. After he had walked a hundred yards or so, now overlooking the empty field, he stopped and said, "This is the place." President Tanner, who had been following close behind and accompanied by the other members of the party, then said, All in favor? When a prophet asks you to raise your hand, it's hard to refuse. (laughs) Suffice it to say, the land President Kimball chose was not for sale. It was disputed land located on property designated as green space. The acquisition of the property and the subsequent building of the Jerusalem Center is, in its own right, as miraculous as Elder Hyde's travels were when he dedicated the Holy Land. The project would come directly under the office of the First Presidency, with the university as the chief beneficiary. The First Presidency appointed Elder Howard W. Hunter, assisted by Elder James E. Faust, to represent the Church in this building project. The Executive Oversight Committee was chaired by BYU President Jeffrey R. Holland. Many others, too many to name, played significant roles in the successful completion of the Jerusalem Center. One I will mention is Brother Robert Thorne. 
Brother Thorne had extensive experience in real estate. When he came to Jerusalem, he thought he would be there for a few weeks. It took him one and a half years to get the land issues resolved. Construction on the Jerusalem Center started in the summer of 1984 and continued nonstop until 1988. Once construction began and people found out the Mormons were involved, there was an immediate outcry to stop the project. The ultra-Orthodox Jewish community were determined to put an end to the center and to stop any potential missionary activities that would result with a Mormon presence in the Holy Land. Every sort of pressure possible was brought to bear against the Church and the University. It became an international news item. The Knesset and various government officials and offices were involved. Israelis took both sides of the issue, some supporting cultural and religious diversity and others seeing Mormon proselyting and conversion of the Jews as a loss of their Jewish identity. After a thorough investigation, the Attorney General determined that everything the Mormons had done was done correctly. As already mentioned, BYU students moved into the Jerusalem Center prior to its completion on March 8, 1987. The Center was dedicated in a quiet ceremony on May 16, 1989, by President Howard W. Hunter. There was no press. Those in attendance included Howard W. Hunter, Thomas S. Monson, Boyd K. Packer, Jeffrey R. Holland, and personnel of the BYU Center. After the Jerusalem Center was finished, President Jeffrey R. Holland took Mayor Teddy Kollek on a tour of the building. Mayor Kollek hardly said anything until towards the end when he said, You have taken the most beautiful piece of property we could, <clears throat> we could have given you and have done more with it than I thought possible. I consider it the most beautiful building in Jerusalem in recent years." Quote. The first resident director of the Jerusalem Center program was David Galbraith. He was followed by Martin Hickman, George Horton, Truman Madsen, S. Kent Brown, Paul H. Peterson, R. J. Snow, Arnie Green, and currently Iran Hayat. Soon after its dedication, Professor James R. Curl, former Dean of Honors and General Education, and at the time the Associate Academic Vice President of BYU was brought on board as the assistant to the university president to oversee the center. He remains in that position today where he is a key player in the ongoing success and operations of the program. Much of the student program, the maintenance of the building, the humanitarian efforts, and the weekly concert series have been influenced by Professor Curl. Oversight and approval for the Center continued to come under the direction of BYU's president, currently President Kevin Worthen, who in turn reports to Brigham Young University's Board of Trustees. The arrangement of the local administration at the Jerusalem Center is unique. It consists of Iran Hayat, an Israeli, the Jerusalem Center's executive director, Tofiq Alawi, a Palestinian Christian, as the associate director responsible for logistics and administration, and a BYU faculty representative who oversees the academic program. So let me conclude my presentation by saying a few words about the student program and the current situation in Jerusalem. There is no easy way to describe the holy city in simple terms. The very name Jerusalem is thought to mean city of peace. 
Isaiah certainly saw a future where this would be so when he said, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee uh, the uncircumcised and the unclean. I do not know how or when this will come about, but I have faith that there will come a day when Jerusalem will be a holy city of peace. There is a story in the Bible that I have reflected on many times. As you recall, Jacob fled from his brother Esau under some very unfavorable circumstances. Understandably, Jacob was beyond nervous when it was time to return. He took every precaution, including much prayer, and he anticipated meeting his brother who was so angry at him when he left so many years before. From the scriptures, we learn of their reunion. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him four hundred men. And he divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Brothers and sisters, I have every confidence that a day will come when those who live in Jerusalem and the Holy Land will come to terms. Again, I do not know how it will happen, but I believe it will. Last week, in a phone conversation with Haran Hayat, I told him I was speaking today and asked if he had anything he wanted me to say. He said, 175 years ago, Orson Hyde came to Jerusalem to pray over this land. He said, tell them we need to continue those prayers today. Located north of the old city, not far from Damascus Gate, is the Garden Tomb. Those who have been there know it well. In the garden is a sign which reads, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is a quote from Psalms 122, verse 6. And so we must. President Howard W. Hunter spoke in the Marriott Center a few months prior to the dedication of the Orson Hyde Memorial Garden. He entitled his talk, All Are Alike Unto God. His message was a reminder that God loves his children, all his children, he said. We need to discover the supreme truth that, indeed, our Father is no respecter of persons. At the present time, we are engaged in a project of beautifying the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem by a garden in memory of Orson Hyde, an early apostle of the Church, and the dedicatory prayer he offered on that site. It is not because we favor one people over another. Jerusalem is sacred to the Jews, but it's also sacred to the Arabs, and I'll add it's sacred to the Christians. They are children of our Father. They are both children of promise. And as a Church, we do not take sides. The purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring about love, unity, 
and brotherhood of the highest order. End quote. Brothers and sisters, I envision a day when there will be peace in the holy city. For God's work and God's glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Of this I know, of this I believe, and I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, Come Follow Me, The Prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.